0: Welcome to New Models Green Room, a show for deep conversations with artists and musicians as they release new work. In this episode we're joined by Lyra Pramuk, who just put out her debut album Fountain on Icelandic label Bedroom Community. A self-described concept queen in the age of Conceptronica, Lyra's personal beliefs and past intensely inform her practice, built around using her voice as the record's only source material. The resulting music, however, expands beyond an individuated experience for both the artist and the listener. I'm Lil' Internet, joined by New Models host Carly Busta, Dan Keller, and today, the writer Jeff Mack. Here's our conversation with Lyra Pramuk.
1: So, we're here in the studio with Lyra Pramik, uh who is a musician and music producer, can we say? Yeah. yeah? Uh, her debut album is called Fountain on the Icelandic label Bedroom Community. I'm Carly Busta.
2: I'm Daniel Keller. I'm Jeff Mack. I'm Lyra. I'm a little internet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So anyway, so we're here. We're a couple weeks out from your album release. Uh, Maybe we could just start by, there's this term, futurist folk music, which is often assigned to your work. How would you describe what that is? What we should think when we hear that term?
3: I like intentionally assigned that to my music, a promoter used it once. And um, language is really a difficult thing to attach to music, but it sort of signifies folk as like a way of being and making and doing music. Folk as uh, centering around community. Uh, Futurist connotes technological tools. It connotes interaction collaboration with technological tools to the extent that that collaboration redefines the aesthetic surface of the music itself and perhaps also my body. So uh, when I think of futurist folk, it's it's encompassing a kind of, um, you know, empathetic forward-looking like a uh, cyborg post-human kind of music practice that goes forward, but also goes back to uh, like a pre-industrialized, pre-institutionalized kind of music making as a kind of speculative fiction.
0: Um, where is the local for your... Folk. Because, I mean, I feel like, yeah, a lot of folk music, usually you think of it as being tied to a certain culture, certain location, something like that. So where, yeah, where is the, how does the local operate today in this terms of your music with like a global audience too? community made up of people from a lot of different places?
3: yeah i mean i mean my my community is de- has definitely been berlin the last six years in terms of music also i think that the the locality of this particular project there's a locality of my body like it has a lot to do with my body and also my brain and what kind of music i'm personally interested in and i feel like there's this very amorphous nature to music community uh, it's like this it can be IRL, but it can also be be URL in this way yeah. that the, the, it, it feels very fluid. And also like the body isn't just the body, isn't just the physical body, but also it's like all of these all of these manifestations and sort of reaching out on other platforms or kind of this, this like cybernetic multimedia body that we right. all sort of have now.
1: Well, interestingly, I mean, for some context, so you've performed with, um, you've toured with Holly Herndon and also with Colin Self. Yeah. And um, you've worked as a performer in uh, the work of Donna Huanca. You also work closely with your brother, who I think mixed your album or did yeah. some production on your album, Ben yeah. Um Yet the voices, when you listen to Lyra's album, maybe we can share a sample of it as part of this. It, it feels, it, it's polyphonic, it feels, there's, it feels like a plurality of voices, and yet they're actually all tracks made from your voice except for electronically modified. So you kind of have this choral element, but it's all made up of you, the many different modulations of yourself.
0: Does that, is it the same on stage as well? Is it just you performing? Yeah, for now. And that's not so planned
3: right now, as it is just a limitation of resources. I have dreams to collaborate and have more musicians on stage with Mm -hmm. me performing music that I'm like authoring or co authoring. I think it takes some time to get to a place where that's something that can be financially viable. I don't like to work with people unless I can pay them, obviously. So it's kind of a process of like doing it slowly, experimenting when I can, when I might have resources for a particular festival or something.
1: Now with England being like there's a new like Brexit law where if you want to perform in England, you have to get visas for every single performer to the tune of a couple hundred pounds each. I mean, that's completely prohibitive.
3: It's from 2021, right?
1: I think from 2021, yeah. yeah. When the Brexit laws all go into effect.
0: Just just in time for corona to end. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
4: Maybe this is a wrong connotation, but I always thought that like there's something inherently about like folk music is white music. Is that wrong? Is that, is that a wrong connotation? Because I always thought that it had something to do like I never hear about it.
0: Maybe you think about neo folk. No, I'm
4: thinking about like folk, folk music. What, what kind of folk? There's maybe spe- it's, I'm just wondering, is that wrong? That yeah, I
0: think it's wrong because it's like Smithsonian folkways, exactly. right? Okay. Like is always looked at uh, native.
1: Uyghur uh, singing, yeah, all kinds Tibetan of throat singing. Yeah. exactly. Okay,
0: I didn't realize I thought that.
1: Was I think it's though neo-folk neo folk is
0: highly okay. charged and Okay, that,
4: maybe that's also what I'm.
0: <laughs> Which is why I, futurist yeah. folk is a nice <laughs> way of <laughs> yeah. being both new yeah, and neo, signifying. we, we beyond neo yeah.
1: here. <laughs>
3: yeah, and I mean, there is a, a connotation of the word folk that's like has that sort of American music industry connotation, which which is very white. Um, but, but one of my and favorite blue, like
0: bluegrass are put together. I think in oh, certain categories right. right? right.
1: So yeah. maybe that Grammy category is probably like folk bluegrass, or
3: like one of the best American singers ever that not a lot of people know about, but who inspired like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Janis Joplin to do music was Odetta, this singer from California who was like born in the 1930s, and um, she was she was a like a bass and a guitar player and a, a bluegrass blues folk rock. Singer and she like did everything and she was she was like really incredible and influential and she she was a black woman and like like that's just another example of where like a lot of people think of folk as white but like actually as in a lot of American music the the roots are very black or very not why
1: (laughs) I mean it is interesting like when we think of so you know Simon Reynolds wrote this article like a couple months ago where he called out a lot of people in our scene as part of this thing called Conceptronica which he said a way for artists to compete in an attention economy that is over it's like uh, oversaturated we'll say I can't read my own handwriting uh, while reflecting their enthusiasm for a vast array of roles and one thing that I thought about and, and, and another criticism that he has or I wouldn't even say criticism another like observation he has is that the music that's being made now, that there's an uh, an onwardness and endlessness that seem to be hallmarks of the 21st century cultural production. So we get to a point where the challenge is no longer how one can take something farther, but where someone can place something. So folk becomes important in, in finding a home for something, finding a reference point. And of course, you know, like white culture, especially in America or America expat communities, it does have this problem of placelessness. And so it is interesting, to see folk be reclaimed, you know, we see this also in Holly's music and maybe a little bit in Collins, maybe in Donna's. And, you know, Donna also is part Native American. I mean, everybody has their own, t- you know, Holly is from this more Appalachia area. People have legitimate ties to this as well.
0: Larry, you got your singing experience in the church. And I mean, that I think also in a, with a generation that's very non-religious. I mean, yeah. there is something... I think that's just outside of denominational religion that's important to, that, that's being recaptured by this kind of focus with Holly and yeah. Larry in singing in choirs. What is the greater spiritual lesson for you, though, of singing in a choir of this communal voice experience? I mean,
3: I grew up singing in in church choirs and also secular choirs. I grew up singing in a lot of choirs. I did <laughs> I did competitive choir like this kind of thing in the U. S. <laughs> yeah, too. Like, it's, so it's like competitive <laughs> choir. No, like where you do auditions and they like pick the best people and then there's like. like (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is actually the secular part. And it's like, it's like part of state schools in the US and it goes all the way from like all states to like all Easterns. And this whole, there's like this whole like trajectory where it's almost like made into a sport like America does with everything. It's
0: like cheer, but singing. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, exactly.
3: But so yeah, I did that and sang in a lot of church choirs, also my relationship with religion in those those church choirs was really fraught to the way that I was really not agreeing with religion at a very young age. But I felt this core of spirituality there. And then I studied classical singing. And then I was interested in, like, pop music. And, and once I got into the sort of, like, punk electronic underground music scene in Berlin, this feeling of I don't, I don't want my voice to be put toward these, like, institutionalized or kind of religious or... If you look at classical music, this kind of Western white supremacist canonized. or when you look at pop music, it feels extremely limiting and like ethically concerning when you look at how pop singers are sort of sculpted and like where does personal agency fit into that. So I think I don't necessarily see my music as fitting into a religious tradition or a classical tradition, or even like a dance music tradition. But there's definitely a, a signifying with a paganism or folk traditions. It's like this kind of utopic idea of just singing for oneself, singing for one's own community, improvising.
4: I just, well, I think we can pivot into just talking about like what community is going to look like these days in the uh, age <laughs> of social distancing. Will you be singing with others? or Are you going to be singing alone? And yeah, I just wonder, like, I think it, I really feel like this could be a real. Real tipping point, especially with music and consumption of music and these kinds of
3: experiential events. Yeah, I was, I mean, I think I was already thinking a lot about media and storytelling on digital platforms, sort of tell stories around my music and direct people to like, have a personal experience with my music. Um, but to be honest, this is right now my first major release. I released three singles on Bandcamp before, so this is a huge coincidence that this is in fact my first (laughs) major learning experience with the music economy as COVID coincides with it. So I'm also at a bit of a loss and also trying to understand what this even means cuz i don't have a context for like another record that was released in non-pandemic times.
0: Uh, I mean maybe you can't share them but are there concepts about what kind of online-based communal performance you could do or i mean i keep having this idea of and maybe this is crazy but like personally i don't have a good picture of how loud groups of voices get? I mean, I guess oh, I guess stadiums can get pretty loud, but like, what if everyone on Earth like sang the same thing at the same time?
2: Everywhere? I mean, I wonder. So like,
3: totally. I mean, you you remind me of something that I was going to say. The experience of singing with other bodies, which is like so much ingrained in my, in, in my physicality. Like if you sing with like 300 people who are like really technically trained, like singing the same piece of music in harmonies, and like it sounds good, and everyone breathing at the same time and like it's all in tune it's like such a trippy experience Like you're literally like this collective like 300 body body right and, and you get
1: these overtones too so these yeah. other tones emerge that wouldn't if it was one person singing, right? Yeah.
3: Yeah, and there's, yeah, there's resonances and vibrating frequencies and, like, the whole of, like, air and physicality around you is, like, a totally different experience. And it feels, it feels like the most physical representation of solidarity that I've ever felt in my life, like, singing with that large group of people.
1: We were thinking, oh, I can't remember I was talking to you, Julian, or my mom over Christmas, and I was saying that, like, There's something that happens in the collective Sunday, like just singing the hymns that you know. And I don't know, to me, it's inexplicable. I'm sure there's a scientific reason for it, but there's something that's cathartic that releases dopamine in the brain that makes you feel good and part of a larger organism. It gets you out of your own ego. And I don't know what that is, but I do think it's a huge loss that we don't have these moments anymore when we can all sing together. Except I guess at the like pop concert where like, you know, the performer puts the mic to the audience and everyone like sings like that. I
4: mean, This this isn't exactly the same, but I, I, I mean, if you've been to a Muslim like Muslim country, the call to prayer is very much that kind of yeah. vibe, and I mean, yeah, depending on your mood, it can be really spiritual. Or at five in the morning,
3: it's,
4: it's not. But yes, <laughs> I mean, but uh, but yeah. yeah, no, I feel like that's maybe the closest that you can feel to this, just like. Everyone singing at the same time in the world, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, in my old apartment in uh, Vetting, I just moved, but one of my neighbors would sing the call to prayer five times a day, and um, he had a beautiful voice. And I was just like all the all the time, just like I'm so happy I live in Vetting. <laughs> yeah. Like, and no one's complaining about this, and it's like so, like, like yes, like and he, he was, it was so beautiful.
0: So I listened to your Macba Museum of Contemporary art interview in Barcelona. And I, th- I was kind of thinking of Hakim Bey. He, I mean, he, be- he wrote Temporary Autonomous Zone. He became kind of famous in the rave scene. He's a bit problematic for his uh, position on boy love. But anyways he really inspired rave culture, but he hated electronic music because he, he thought it was like cold and computational. And he, he was like, Oh, the ravers get everything right except for the music. And they should have like live improvised, like wild melodies and twirling time signatures at rave parties. And then they'd be doing it. Didgeridoos. Absolutely. Only right. didgeridoo's. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like, Oh, uh, when I read that, of course I was like, ah, uh, man, what is he talking about? Like rave music is cool like you'll never have cool improv but you're kind of making cool you suggest a way that that could happen you i ha- think
1: and your time signatures are kind of twirling like oh, you do you. mess with that those but kinds of I guess, orthogonal but my things.
0: my reason for this introduction though is like if you do consider it a political act to improvise music or to move away from the sort of prescribed rules of pop or uh, electronic music and focus on the voice focus on improvisation and your live sets which I believe you do
3: I forgot sometimes that I did play a lot with like time signatures and harmonies and stuff in the music but I really did I really tried to like go many directions in terms of, like, showing what it... Like, like I think I think there's one track that's in three, and then it goes into nine, and then there's another track that's in six. But you also get sort of a, a lot of polyrhythms in that, so sometimes it doesn't even feel like it's in six. And then there's, there's like, I think three of the tracks are sort of in normal four, and then two of the tracks, there's no time at signature, and it was just arranged just, like, music, just, like, tape, just, like, placing stuff. I think it was in... In Cairo in the 40s, there was like an international conference on the state of um, Arabic world music. And a lot of like very renowned composers in Egypt and in the Middle East like came together, but also with a lot of Western intellectuals to kind of look at the state of non-Western music as as the sort of Western music industry was being industrialized and spreading all over the world. So they were realizing that like a lot of like kinds of modes and scales and rhythms that were native to to Arabic music, but also to, you know, Indian music and other kinds of Asian music that they were going to be sort of rooted out. And they were going to lose to like the 12 tone scale of Western music that that's
0: especially with electronic equipment. Yeah. Right. Oh, it's it's yeah. the only option you have If you're buying a synthesizer With a 12 tone western scale right. Just wanted to Yeah,
3: Yeah. and so there's like ethical and also kind of like decolonial frames too that like a lot of that standardization of rhythm and scale in the Western music industry makes it a lot easier for things to like blend together and to sell things and to make a musical language that can be like scaled and is relatable but also like it made it easier for like instrument manufacturers to like manufacture pianos and instruments and that there was like standardization and that they could like sell those things all over the world but a lot of other kinds of music lost out to like Western mainstream kind of classical pop music as the record industry also progressed and got more lucrative. So I think I don't know. In the fallout of the music industry, in the fallout of the relevance of of recorded music, um, I think it's such a good time to look at what is the place of performance. What could it be? What is the place of all these other kinds of musics that lost out to this kind of monolithic musical culture since like the 1930s? Even like American like country, bluegrass, folk music. There are songs that are written in in other meters, but. What exists outside of the standardization? There's a whole blossoming world of music and color and scale, tonality, intonation, rhythm that is possible. Even just looking at like polyrhythms in, in West Africa, like like it's such a rich musical culture and there's so much people don't know about or people can't move their bodies to. R-
0: reminds me of two things. One that uh, I think Pygmies, their polyphonic music predates Western Polyphonic music by thousands of years. Um, But the other thing I remember, apparently, like a lot of ancient Greek poetry or certain texts from ancient Greece we have are written in this like six beat meter for the soldiers, but they would like recite these poems while they marched, but it was, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. For some reason, and I was thinking, like, for some reason, the six. Beats like it never feels like it resolves. It keeps you like right before you. I mean, maybe that's just because I'm used to the four four, but it also feels like no, you know, it does. Like you you never, want the seven? You, you need you, you, it. You never something. get the right. closure. You don't right. get this kind of like um, rat hitting the lever like, conclusion. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> right, and right, right. Start again. It's like you're always in this uh, position of moving forward. So I think yeah, even meter can affect people in a in in a significantly different way than. You would normally from four-four music.
1: I mean, music is just to like say it again really clearly. I mean, music and music meter is a great like metaphor if when we think about how the world is being quantified right now. We're putting into certain systems, and the kind of systems that you put the world into will shape the world and will make certain things possible, but will limit other things. And that is such a beautiful example when it comes to music and polyphonic harmonies and like polymeters or non-Western orthogonal meters or however.
0: It also moves into. a a fraught territory but one that might have relevance here of jam bands (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh I mean, God. But, wait,
1: yeah. Wait, how do but, we disarticulate wait, the jam wait, band right from like what because we're talking about to be about. honest so it's a bizarre
0: example of like almost like a dual power system <laughs> where you have wait <laughs> you have to, oh, listen God. this is a really this is te- a terrible take <laughs> that that might actually have something i do good. have a story
1: for you after this but but think about it this
0: way like fish right okay they're in imper- my story They're improvisational, they They tour all over the country, no set is the same, and there's an entire economy, like community, like almost political system, like it literally is a, a sort of other layer of society. Think about if what emerged around jam bands, like something emerged around this new form of improvisational music that actually like wasn't horribly corny. Like, it could be powerful yeah. and significant. Yeah. And for some reason, it happens around improvisation more than other types of music. It happened with the dead. It happened with um, it happened with fish. Um, yeah, I, I just feel like something about improvisation, I guess because it's always evolving and you're part of a longer process, that it, it can sort of be... Generate these sort of um, alternative communities around it. I don't know. Maybe yeah. there's something inherent there. Do you see any potential in jam- like the jam band model? Yeah,
3: <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I think like actually the kind of core of. Jazz music was improvisational, right? And there's so much amazing jazz music that's like ornately composed on paper, mm-hmm. but but there's like there's like a whole practice of jazz that evolved into like free um, free improvisation and this kind of like um, like really visceral physical like group jamming, setting rules, following conditions. Also, you could like relate it to like kind of like LARPing or role-playing in this way of like musical (laughs) musical role-playing there's huge potential for that and and it's also fun to just like set random limitations like that like say like okay let's try to do like this meter this key or like when we get to this certain time mark like try to do something else everything I do personally on this on this solo record was like it's like basically all improvised. Some Hi. of it then like turned into turned into some more traditional composition kind of stuff or traditional production. But like almost everything started as some kind of improvisation. Whether it was like a synth that I made out of my voice that I was like playing in a super naive improvisational way and like listening, getting feedback, recording things, or or like the the more and most common thing, like literally just going in front of a microphone and and just having tons and tons of projects recorded snippets and then starting to like piece together a world kind of intuitively from these things and letting them these recordings, these improvised recordings sort of give me the information to tell me what they wanted to be.
1: Maybe it's interesting to hear for a second what your process is. So as I hear it, it's like you go in front of the mic and you you try you try things, maybe not too critically, like you just sort of see what comes out. And then you take all that and you look at it with like a bit of more of an objective distance and you start to build a song structure from the raw materials that you have captured. So the composition really happens like in the digital space. It's being probably for a lot you know all electronic artists obviously that's the way it is is that how or, or what is it for you and are there people in the studio while you're doing this or not or what's the like what's no, sort like, of the behind no, like the my, like, my behind process, the scenes
3: my process of making and producing this record was totally solitary and I did it totally all on my own mm-hmm. and then I handed it over to my brother and we worked on the mix together he did most of the work but I was with him the whole time for the session I'm yeah. kind of I kind of have control issues, but we worked on that through the process. And
1: it's your twin brother, so yes. it's like almost part of you.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also really cool because he knows me really well.
1: But so, but for your process then, so like...
3: Yeah, so me, I mean, even if I just use the first three tracks on the album as, as an example, I think I see the performance as the generative thing, like just trying things on stage, just trying to get that visceral kind of emotion mm-hmm. and then the first track on this album it was it was like really an improvisation that i did at a concert in milan in 2018 that someone happened to record i had a snippet of and then i wrote and based a song off of it Like, oh that's like a nice melody then go to the piano like write out some chords and then i feel like it always starts with something like improvisational or intimate and then it's like built out from that at least this time i would like to work in more collaborative ways too but i think this record has been really important for me simply in the sense that i'm i'm I've still been trying to figure out who who I even feel like as a music producer and as a vocalist. And it helps to have something to reflect back to you to be like, okay, what is it that I'm actually interested in doing with other people?
1: Right. Right. When you think of the performance of this album, like let's say, I mean, it, who knows what's happening with COVID, but were you to stage this in a live setting, what would that look like for you? What are you thinking about?
3: So I have performed this music live already like four or five times. Oh. And honestly, my set used to be a lot more um, improvisational than it is now because these <laughs> these compositions sort of evolved into a way that like they have more structure and, and they're more structured than anything that I was performing A year and a half ago. So I don't know, it seems like it feels like weird karaoke to me sometimes because like (laughs) there aren't, they aren't standard pop songs in the way that like there's like, like you would sing in karaoke, like you're going to have the verse and the chorus, but I sort of improvise through everything. I sing whatever I feel like singing on that day within any song at any given time of that song. So I just like go on the ride on my own journey through this so it is different every time. And there are moments where I'm doing live looping. There are moments where it's more improvisational. It's also kind of performative. Like, I don't know, I've been like really raving on stage recently <laughs> when I do this, like it's getting more physical and moving a lot more because it feels, it feels like the concert when it comes out of the album, that it feels like it feels like more ravey, more, more like ritualistic in a way. I'm part of the audience, you know. Right. I'm just like leading the ritual.
1: Um, related to living, re- leading the ritual, it's kind of a superficial question, but it's one that I still have. Um, and you've worn all this great fashion, like recently, and I wonder like, what your thoughts are on fashion right now, or what role that plays in your performance, or and I know you've also participated in like some fashion week stuff. But.
2: Well, I'm really interested in
1: random identities. What? To tell us about random identities. So, Stephanie. random
3: identities is the label of Stefano Pilati, who who um you may know as um being. Oh, yeah. The Zone. menswear designer yeah. of YSL, yeah, for like 12 seasons or something. Yeah. But, but um Stefano's a friend of mine. I mean, he's just like, he's just like so next level beyond thinking about this. Like, it's like unisex menswear for like everyone, very post-identity politics.
1: Unisex menswear, that does mean like all garments are like fair game.
3: I mean, it's a lot of tailoring because that's yeah. like what he does. Um, it's like very tailored stuff. but it's it's not just like suits and blazers. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, he's just like he's showing this huge vocabulary of like possibility. and it's it's very um, what's the word? It's very um
0: multitudinous <laughs> 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 um, it,
3: It's very irreverent in a way. Uh, yeah. I think it's like it's like because because he was working in high fashion for so many years that that he sees this as like, like his his passion project to make, like more affordable clothing for the children. yeah, you know, so it's like it's 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 beautiful yeah, what he's doing
2: well, also, the idea behind the name is really cool because it's like, yeah, the identities that we're born with are random. Um, but through clothes, we can shape it.
3: Yeah, I guess there's a lot of associations with that name too. Like yeah. I've, I've sort of tripped out thinking about random identities. i just yeah. think it's before.
1: surveillance, of course. Like random identity is get captured. Going back to spirituality,
2: though, Uh-oh. Um, I wanna I wanna go back to this. Like, what what is spirituality for you? Now,
3: I think I have a really I think I have a really personal sense of spirituality, and um, it's I mean it's difficult to describe. I think you can hear it in my music. I find my music is like kind of devotional in this way that I'm like constantly kind of professing love and kind of reveling in not knowing answers to questions that I'm asking and and being okay with that, being okay with the fact that I don't know everything. That's part of my spirituality. It's also just like nature has a lot to do with my sense of spirituality, like the concept of nature. Um, the concept of not of the natural, but just like life um, and being a part of life in, in the sense of like um, outside of human society, you could say.
4: Do you go hiking? Do you go to the woods? Do you I go- love to
3: go hiking. Do you yeah.
4: forage as well?
3: Um I okay so I'm not that advanced yet but I have aspirations. Foraging aspirations I think is like so we try to get all of our guests <laughs> to be Yes. I have foraging aspirations. In November I I went on a hike in Oslo with Lars Holdus and it was really nice.
0: It's one thing for you not to know something and accept it personally. But do you believe in the unknowable?
2: Yes. I think well, that's, that's also it. gender. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah this is often our def- we're always talking about spiritual determinism and determinism we're always thinking about that
4: I'm not a determinism i no. a materialist it's not the same thing
1: Okay, that's, and but we do real. the working definition that we do have of like the spiritual that I think is maybe agreeable among all of us is like the unknowable ends up the spiritual occupies that space of that which we don't know, and some people are going to call that God, some people are going to call that something else, some people just have a sense of it, but that's where the spiritual lives in the unknowable or the cannot yet be determined.
3: Yeah, I, I I identify as that
1: with that <laughs> <That's beautiful. laughs>
3: yeah definitely I think I think also like there's 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 many camps of like very progressive artistically minded scientists who see the entire history of science as a kind of journey kind of a, a, a sensual journey into that unknowing you know I think science itself is always thought of as this like cold mathematical statistical kind of thing but at, at, I see it as a very romantic thing and when I hear actual scientists talk about their work it's usually really romantic
1: I mean for sure sure. And the metaphors they use to describe what they're saying totally like border on the occult often.
0: I mean, shout out Makba again. (laughs) It got me, it got me listening to Ursula Kayla Gwyn all day long. Um, and I mean, one thing she said is like, she, she, when asked about spirituality, she said she does not understand how, uh, science and religion or spirituality, like cannot coexist like or how they do, do not coexist perfectly together. And that I tend to uh, agree because I think science is ultimately just finding out more and more about what is in the realm of spirituality or religion or giving magic. names
1: to it or giving right. or giving, giving structures to try to understand it. But uh, I wanted to ask, there was a, you also mentioned
0: a Ursula K. Le Guin uh, Piece that I actually didn't get the chance to read, but I think it was Telling his Listening. Oh, my or, gosh, yeah. But can you can you just run us through, like, because I also think about your, I mean, most of your music, it doesn't have lyrics, right? It's almost like glossal glossol- They have glossol- titles, yeah.
2: though.
0: Yeah, but it's so, um, so, I mean, in a way, it seems to me, I mean, music is its own language. It has emotional correlates, um, so it, do, it is, c- does communicate. But I wanted to ask about that essay in particular, if if and how it applies to your music, but also just give me a rundown of it because I'm curious.
3: So I wanted to mention too, and you brought up Ursula K. Le Guin earlier, um, uh, her father was a cultural anthropologist. He had a, a beat-up copy of the Tao Te Ching from Lao Tzu that was translated into English in like 1890. So she grew up around this copy of the Tao Te Ching. Uh, she spent her entire adult life as a writer and intellectual, making her own translation of the Tao Te Ching for In in her words, it was always it was always like designed for masters or men or sort of politicians, sort of like typical like male leaders. And she wanted to make a translation of the Tao Te Ching that could be like for for like women and common people and people who were not leaders, like the everyman. Um, Because the pronouns
0: in it too were male, right? Yeah, and and, I mean she talks about this as well that about the pronouns in in um, in fiction or or in writing, and she actually mentioned that. Shakespeare used they, singular they's a lot.
3: Yeah, to go back to your other point about um, telling is listening, I try to summarize. She she like opens the essay by um, laying out what we think communication is or, or how we, how we sort of would typify communication in the Western world, which is sort of like this diagram she draws of a box A and a box B and the box A submits a command to box B, which receives the command and sends back information to box A, this kind of like binary, like, like a multi directional single street where information is transferred between these two boxes, like a computing code. Like I want information. Like yeah. Like ping pong. And um and, and she goes on to say how like in person visceral oral human communication is more like amoebas. And they, amoebas usually do not need to mate, they, they self-generate, um, but there are certain instances where it would behoove an amoeba to, to mate in a traditional way. And what they do is each of them cuts off a bit of their genetic code and they simultaneously sort of merge their bodies in this way that they pass genetic code to each other and they simultaneously become one organism. So her argument, as quickly as I could summarize it now, is that like in-person human communication is this kind of dance between um, two people where they sort of become one, where where how you react to what someone is saying shapes what the person is saying. So -hmm. it's like this constant like every millisecond shapes the kind of communication in real time. Um, she goes on to talk about different oral traditions and like native communities and like oral storytelling and performance and dramaturgy and like acting. And it's just like this really interesting meditation on, on what it means to communicate in person with, with other humans.
0: But I don't think it applies to Twitter. Well, <laughs> no, and I, I, I've thought about this a lot, too,
3: because I think, I think she's really talking about like being in physical space. Mm-hmm. And, like, a lot of times when people are just on their devices, they're alone. And so they're missing that dance. Like, what is subconsciously happening in someone's head when they're like ranting on Twitter or like ranting on Reddit or something? It's the first thing is like, you're alone and you're upset. Mm -hmm. If there's another person in the room, your response would be totally different.
0: Mm -hmm. Because emotionally, you would even feel different. Everything would be different Mm -hmm. in terms of the state of the, yeah. And then to expand, and this gets into my my last and headiest question, I'm a music producer, or at least was a music producer at, at some time and had tr- songs on records and whatever uh but I, i've been doing music for a very long time but i don't know how to write music i don't know anything about music theory never learned an instrument at all so how nor- notes and chords and melody and chord progressions work in terms of the emotions i feel hearing them is a total mystery to me so i i wonder though if you have maybe a methodology personally about the notes or melodies or harmonies you choose and the emotions those communicate to listeners. And uh, I mean, if you actually, when you're making music, do you think about it as a form of emotional communication? Is there intention in terms of the type of feeling you want to communicate?
3: Yeah, I think so, and I think a lot of times when I'm listening to, like, I'm 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 a big nerd into like music concret and this idea of like sound as physical objects, and like when I'm composing, actually, like and this way, like I was thinking about like Conceptronica and and Simon Reynolds and that whole argument. I think like there's a lot of ways that I really fit that profile <laughs> because <laughs> I'm, I'm really I'm really into like concepts. I'm a concept queen. Um, But I think in terms of the actual music, I'm really seriously like feel like a craftsperson, like I'm making a table or something. I don't know, but it feels very material, very physical when I'm actually trying to put stuff together. There's this American composer, Morton Feldman, who I really like, who's also making like very meditative material music. He was also thinking of sounds as objects. He come from a family of rug makers so he would write a lot of like theory about music in terms of the physical act of like weaving a rug and that stuck with me since i heard that for the first time when i was like 20 so i literally wrote to myself working on this music like i'm i'm making a rug out of silicon maybe all the colors are the same because it's all from my voice but like what are the knots what does the rug look like what are the patterns like that kind of thinking
0: i was thinking the colors about would be notes right though. I almost feel like yeah I mean, of these synesthesia. Chords, they
4: all have different
0: I don't know to me it really, my synesthesia to me I don't know it really has like there's there's very specific feelings tied to certain yeah. chords especially even two chords in sequence can like communicate as clearly as language to me a particular feeling. Yeah. But we've talked we've no, about this before
4: though it's like is it on a universal level, like on a biological level, or is it a cultural level? Because it I do universal.
3: wonder. I no, it's a cultural level. Ah, uh, oh, there uh, we go. Uh, I think it's cultural.
4: Yeah,
1: we do have we that this I debate like, I yeah, a few times. I'll give you
3: an example of why I was going to say it's cultural mm-hmm. when, when you're asking this question. Is like in Indonesia, there's a lot of like what we would consider like minor mode. Music that's used in gamelan, but it's used for celebrations and it's meant to be happy. There you go. There you go. And so it's, it's yeah. culturally associated as something that is happy, whereas in Western culture, we're coded to hear minor mode and like it's sad. And it's always considered something sad. And it even elicits a sad response in me because I think it's coded culturally in me since I was young that it's like sad. It's associated with sad lyrics, it's associated with so. I still feel like you when I hear minor songs. I still feel sad, but I think it is cultural.
2: Mm, but pentatonic is also minor and major. Yeah, that's kind of, pentatonic is kind of its but, own thing, isn't it? Yeah.
0: But I do think the other thing though I've heard when investigating this because this has been an a bit of an investigation for me and and we've talked about it before in the podcast, but is that I I have heard that the right there's these minor scale songs that seem happy to certain cultures but at the same time that culture's idea of happy is actually like our idea of happy like the happy birthday song is just so saccharine to them it's not even a realistic emotion like so the 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 happy it is is just like it's a different it's it's still happy but it's just a, a more muted more uh in tuned you mean like you
1: mean like the difference between like happy in America being tied to the idea of a capitalism happy yeah. of accumulation or, of growth of like ascendancy, whereas in other cultures it might be of, like, sharing something, of, like, having intimacy with a group of friends. Or it might be a more, medi- med- meditative, oh right, more meditative, so happy. maybe even the definition of happy has changed.
0: This is just a fragment of something, and I don't know about any of this that I p- picked up, but isn't there something, like, maybe Lacan wrote about, like, joy, jouissance, or something about, like, some Western, like, just... It, obsession with being like as happy as possible all the time are always like <laughs> making things like jubilant yeah. and aren't like
1: guys in like Silicon valley doing like dopamine fasts i think there's some <laughs> relation right. but that's
0: what i'm saying it's just like the the that like in non-western cultures like th- that sort of saccharine like forced happiness like the happy birthday song, is not a realistic emotion to them. So their happy songs are just
1: realistic
0: happy. It's like how our moms are like, why aren't you
1: smiling in your Instagram photos? (laughs) And I'm like, well, because like dead face is much hotter. But that's (laughs) why
0: I think that how you feel listening to different chord progressions, for instance, is universal. It's just the language maybe we put it in is different.
3: Yeah, or the delivery so, or, or like, the context. And even that's when it comes into, like, sound design. I think, like, I'm particularly really allergic to a lot of kinds of pop production techniques of, like, really happy pop songs that I felt, felt propagandist to me when I was a kid.
2: I wanted to ask you about um, speculative design. You said something really beautiful about the spider. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. Well, this was an anthology that I got
3: called superhumanity, the design of the self. And it was put together by these like architecture professors and media theorists. Um, It was a big team, but like two of the core uh, members are Mark Wigley and Beatrice Colomina. And um, there's another interview of theirs that I was reading too. And they're like, they're like really obsessed with this idea of like, like building technology and humanity together. And they see like good product design as like this traumatic experience that is like constantly traumatizing us and
0: um good product design is traumatizing
3: yeah yeah they think they think about how like design should be an inquiry and should have that a sense of exploration that a lot of corporate design, or like thinking about usability, or right, like right. things like this. That 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 it's no one knows how it comes about, or why what works works, or whether what works actually works. It just sort of happens, and then becomes integrated in, into our lives. And they say that like you know like a lot of. Like neuro, new neurological disorders come out and and come to light as technology is shaped and evolved, and as cities are shaped and evolving. And um, but the spider was like a sort of metaphorical analog that they used um, in this book, which which was looking at the archaeology of design. And um, I don't remember the exact quote, but they were talking about design as something which emerges from ourselves and it and is enacted through us and is inseparable from us and the spider was the analogy for that this idea that the spider's web comes from within its own body and the web is external to the spider but it was once internal and totally non-sequitur but i was i just saw another study where scientists have been studying Spiders, how they use their webs as an extension of their brains.
0: Oh
2: yeah. It's Did actually, you see this? Yeah, it's Ray. actually physical
0: code like Yeah, like memory or code of it's, yeah or and also no, it's a sensory organ. Yeah.
1: Also, oh wow. Right? Yeah. Like, wow.
3: Yeah, like there is there they have this whole complicated code of understanding nature and prey and their environment and their own bodies and where they are through the web that scientists are just starting to understand that it's not arbitrary and like I've thought about like speculative design and this whole movement of speculative design that's been around now for what almost like 20 years and like I think a lot about my My life as an artist, as a performer and my music in terms of speculative design and taking in these kind of ideas of like designing oneself or even seeing one's output as an extension of oneself releases or albums or maybe something you produce even as a kind of gestation or a kind of birthing. For instance, if we're living in a society where we have where the population is way too high, imagining also a possible future where there are limitations on uh, or restrictions on childbirth, what is it that we are birthing, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as a trans woman, what is it that I am birthing, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, I, I've been thinking about like ideas like this too, or even like, um, yeah, Rilke actually writes about that, that the impulse for creatively giving birth to something comes from the same impulse to give birth to a child.
1: When we think about bodies as part of a communal organism, as opposed to you know, which also has to do with the singing choirs or these resonances between each other, we we diffuse this impulse to procreate as individuals. We realize that the organism itself can give birth to something Um, that doesn't necessarily need to be another human being copy.
3: Yeah. What's also really interesting about this idea of like design and technology and humanity being more enmeshed than we traditionally think about them. Mark, one of these uh, theorists, was uh, talking about how, you know, perhaps the real human is the aggregate of each human's data (laughs) and and the physical body is just an avatar. That's great. (laughs) And I've been reading... um, Rosie Braidotti's writings about posthumanism, which have been really inspiring for me, and she she approaches some of these the, some of these same same ideas of like like are we actually just these kind of like bundles of our aesthetic preferences, our writings, our our data? Like, yeah. are we we're like these bundles of of like manifested things? So I think. I don't know, like at the core, I feel like, I feel like I, I adhere to this kind of experimental speculative ideology in a way that like supersedes, like it's like the realist I can get, I feel (laughs) like, like in terms of thinking about like identity and this kind of thing where it feels, that feels so real to me that it feels like actually going back to talking about like a more anthropocentric idea of what it means to be human without saying like, oh, that digital stuff isn't a part of who we are? Like oh, going no. Back, yeah. I mean, of
1: course it's part of it, for sure. I mean, there's an yeah. idea of humanity that says, like, we're human the moment that we have a tool as an extension as part of us, whatever that is. Right. It's the moment that we're actually human. Um, but there's something
0: gnarly about this, which is that, I and this is something I've been thinking about recently for some reason, but it's just, it, when most of your life is spent online, let's say, like, Do you like think, do you have memories of your time spent online? Not really yet. You're generating all of this data, all of this, right? Like to an external viewer, there's a richer picture of yourself than to like say on your deathbed, your life flashing before your eyes.
1: It's <laughs> just being on Twitter. <laughs> right. All and the you're the just like, oh, I guess I was
0: on Twitter. Like, I, I guess, like, what would you like? You don't even remember the the moments. They're not visceral enough. They're not powerful enough. they're not enough. yours they
1: have- or others that you've read. Right. They, they, right. There's
0: just not enough there to seal it in memory. And so you leave this super rich, like, d- d- the super data rich like a uh, trail behind you of your life. But when it comes to your subjective experience of your own life, it ends up kind of empty. Hmm. It's a bit gnarly.
3: Yeah, it feels like amnesia. Like all this time spent yeah. online feels yeah. a little bit amnesiac.
0: Yes. But to someone else, they could get a really clear picture of of your thoughts at the time and what you were going through. But to yourself- The
1: aggregate person right, that you're acting your, as.
0: Shit, yo, it's fucked up.
1: <laughs> really,
0: <laughs> this shit is gnarly. Um, but what you said just reminded me of that. Yeah, and no,
1: it's, it's fucked totally. up. I need to, yeah, totally.
2: What is the difference between designing the body and designing the self?
3: I think I think it's very connected, and I guess it really depends on. I feel like that's an individual question for you. For everyone, I feel yeah. like everyone should have the agency to answer that question on their own. But for me, what is the difference between designing the body and designing the self? I think they're related. I think designing the body is one aspect of designing the self, and I, I, I guess, I guess following this logic of, of perhaps like the larger digital aggregate of oneself, that that's the self.
2: Yeah.
0: Does the self have to be singular?
3: Could it be multiple?
2: In the music, it's multiple.
3: In the music, it's multiple, yeah. and I think there's, I think there's a lot of zoomers who have multiple identities and are just cool with it. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't personally relate to that, but I think, I think that there are a growing number of people who are really comfortable having many identities for different contexts and it's just a part of their lives.
1: There's this older idea, but I mean, you know, like, Rena Spallings was formative to my understanding of, like, how a subject formation works, but it's also based on a lot of Italian autonomism. And there's this line in their novel from 2000, Bernadette Corporation, from like 2003 or four, where it says, selves make bodies, so the self makes the body. And that can be, you know, and you see that in an organic way. I mean, what even is organic? You see that in like a classic way, of like a grumpy old man. You can, you know, you see his like he sort of the brow is all furrowed and, and you're like, oh, you led a life. Your self was one that held all this anger, all this like contempt in your body. And then your body becomes an expression of that. But of course we can make our body, the selves make bodies in, in all sorts of ways. Sometimes there's like with different levels of like external or internal um, projection. So I don't think it's that the body makes the self. I think it's the self makes the body and the self is agency to remake the body any way they want.
3: Yeah, I think that I think that's sort of what I was trying to say. Yeah. I think the the self is like the body is like one part of the project of the self. Yeah, exactly. Or something. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
4: A lot of people cannot design their own bodies or their own selves and don't like that isn't something that is like actually available to most people. I think that there's something that's like really kind of Yeah, right,
0: it's new. Yeah, and it's Class, and available,
4: class based for right, sure.
0: In terms of being able to actually medically change it. No,
4: body. at all. like even if you want to like lose weight, not everyone can do that. You no. Can't just sculpt your body. I
1: would. I would still say that. I would still say that. I mean, as like mm-hmm. a woman who like I've thought a lot about body, whatever, for for many years. Um. I mean, I you know, people do gain and lose weight. They get pushed into extreme psychological positions where their bodies change. You know, it does not matter what class you are. It does not matter what race you are. Depending on what kind of psychological situation you're in, your body is going to change. Now, it's true that sometimes it's difficult to actually say, "I want my body to look like this," and then have it look like that, but there is still some kind of like inner self which ends up producing a body and i think over time i think as people get older they have sometimes more agency to be when they understand their bodies better they're able to manipulate them more but I, I still do think there's something in the self that changes the body. Even though, yeah, I mean we're talking about different levels. There's a level of like having like, you know, external intervention or like it coming naturally from the inside.
0: Right, right. But when does Lyra's album come out and are there gonna be any remixes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um
3: that I mean that's that's also too interesting of a topic. I'm like I'm like totally I mean like it's a, kind
0: of more significant than a normal remix would be I would I would love right? to
3: do I would love to do like a more formal, like rework kind of thing. But but that's under wraps. but I would love to see something come out that was kind of taking that kind of spiritual journey and letting people just go take their own mm. take their so own like kind of journey, journey from from the like
0: or something, yeah. Cool. How's and your label? What label are you? They're Icelandic, right?
3: Yeah, it's Bedroom Community. They're in Iceland. Um,
0: Have you been there? Did you go visit? No, like? no, oh. actually, but
3: I I hope to soon. Yeah. Um. It's all been it's all been digital correspondence right now, um. And the label managers in the UK too. So like I'm. Ah. It's, it's like it's like kind of like a UK Iceland. Like it's yeah. So
0: I very island. Cold,
3: ice-oriented <laughs> label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Um, are there any other musicians or other artists inspiring you, or that you feel is sort of like co-birthing something at the moment?
3: Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm really, I'm really inspired by um, a couple of friends uh, who I feel like have a very in- intensive kind of deep listening, kind of material practice to to composition. Um, Callie Malone is one of them and Katarina Barbieri. But yeah, like I think there's there's like a whole movement of music that's modeling feminist materialist theory and this deeper approach to like listening and sensuality of sound. I feel really lucky to like find contemporaries that are breaking out of a lot of these like stylistic constraints. I'm also obsessed with like if we're talking about like um Performance practice, improvisation, um, giant swan are so cool in terms of what they do and how they, how they've like built their recordings too. It's all out of this, like this like collaborative, like improvised dynamic. Also gabber modus operandi, which is like a a different lens, but like combining like an Indonesian folk culture with like gabber and hardcore and like (laughs) building this whole like ritualistic language, combining all these elements. Do you know Jamila Woods? No, she's in the us um, and she just released this record last year called Legacy Legacy. It's kind of like um really well produced, really cool, like kind of neo soul hip hop. She's a singer, um, but every track is dedicated to like a really famous, well-regarded uh, intellectual African-American intellectual. So she's like it feels like this like composite of like this library of devotion to people who she's looked up to. Hmm,
2: cool. She's also
3: like a community organizer um, i I really like her approach to like making pop music. Um
0: I have this ongoing playlist with like my favorite songs ever. I think I have like one hundred and fifty songs right now. And, and I swear if somebody who's like really new music theory listened to all of them, they could find some. Like the Da Vinci code to like what all these songs have in common. But I wanted to ask you, let's just say in terms of emotional intensity, no matter where that falls on the scale, I want to know a couple of your favorite songs ever.
3: I'm like, I would say I'm really like, like devotion is a word that's really, I use a lot and I identify with a lot. Like the music that I love the most, I feel like devoted to. Right. It's like something like I revere it. hmm it's like uh like
0: maybe music like that that have like affected you in a significant way and also for like a long time, for instance.
3: Yeah. Um, Midtown 120 Blues by DJ Sprinkles. Yes. That record I think really I I return to a lot. Uh, um, I think it's so gorgeous. It's so good. It's so gorgeous. And um uh certain pieces by Steve Reich that mm. um, have been like like AIDS to me in my life. Like where I like. It's going
2: to rain.
3: Well, well, okay. So my, my Steve Reich like pieces are music for 18 musicians and. um, Oh
2: yeah. Uh, Tehalim. Okay.
3: Which he was setting, I don't know which part, but a part of the Torah. So it's like actually a piece of like devotional Jewish music. Um, it's for four singers, and they um, end uh, ensemble. And this is Tehalim by Steve Reich. The four singers, they reflect each other like delay lines throughout the whole piece. So one starts and then second, third, fourth. And the rhythm is extremely complicated. It's so hard because it changes <laughs> between two and three like all the time. It's like really, really complicated. And the singers like reflect like ping pong all these notes and it's like mathematical in this way. But then the strings, he was really into like rock music. He's like a New York Jewish guy. Like he was, he was really into like, it's like these like power chords. like
2: <laughs> <laughs> like this like
3: really, really rich, like power chords and the strings with these like complicated rhythms. Wait, what else? I'm still tripping out. I need to go. Yeah. To you some more. I um,
0: want
3: to hear more. Um, um homogenic by Bjork.
1: Oh yeah. When the title of your album is Fountain, which I then learned is the translation of Pramuk in from Czech to English. Yeah. But it was a Bjork reference, which is the first thing that came to my mind.
2: <laughs> yeah, no,
3: totally. <laughs> she does use the word fountain, and I thought of that the other day because I was like, I was like, I was thinking like, where else does fountain is like Duchamp. I am a fountain. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, <laughs> Wait. Music. Music. Um, Emotion. Okay. okay, music, Aggression. Emotions. What about aggression? Um, I got into, I mean, speaking of folk, I mean, um, I got really into, I never listened to Joni Mitchell when I was a kid, and I got really into Joni Mitchell, like, the last four years. Mm-hmm. Like, I went, like, deep into Joni Mitchell. She's, like...
2: Which song? Early or Wait, late?
3: Um, all of it. Yeah. Like, everything, but I think she was, like, a prophetic genius, like, really, really. But... I can tell you a single track. Yeah. Um, Fire gut from Alicia Crampton's record. The light that you gave me to see you.
2: Um,
4: no. Not favorite, but what's your what's the most played song on your iTunes? <laughs> oh. um, yeah, that's another
2: truth. way to
3: do it. Sprinkles, that that Sprinkles record. There we go. Yes. Yeah.
0: Cool. So there
2: you
1: have it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, should we wrap there, do you yeah, think? But so, let's
0: get, maybe we should just, let's wrap with all the plugs. Yeah, like, exactly. What's all the data, the least date, where you prefer people yeah. to buy it so we'll say so we'll
1: fabricate it a little bit and we'll say like right no we don't need to fabricate it a little bit we'll say like thank you Lyra for coming on the pod (laughs) your record is out March 20th on Bedroom Community Records it's called Fountain and uh what are we missing
3: yeah I mean it's out on March 20th um watch out for more news. I'm, I'm gonna like be sharing some more stories and like some more intimate accounts of what this music was So like watch out for it, like have an intimate moment with this record cause that's what I wanted it to be. I want it to be like for people to like have their own relationship with it as a design object. <laughs> Um, and um, what else Um, buy vinyl or buy it on Bandcamp but don't stream it on Spotify and if you don't buy my music on Bandcamp tell your friend to and buy someone else's music on Bandcamp because that goes more directly to supporting the livelihood of artists than uh, streaming our music for free and not getting any money from Spotify. Yes, And you probably don't use Tidal, but Tidal pays a lot better. (laughs) You might use Apple Music. If you do, that does pay a lot better also than Spotify, but, but the best way is to just go on Bandcamp. And even if you support one artist and buy their record and it's not me, I would rather you do that than listen to my music on Spotify.
1: All right, especially in the time of COVID, super important.
0: Absolutely. All cool.
1: right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Lyra. Thank you, Jeff. See you next episode. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Lyra and Jeff, for joining us, and thank you for listening to New Models Green Room. Lyra Pramuk Fountain is available on Bandcamp now. To access all of New Models content and to join our Discord community, visit patreon.com slash new models. See you next episode.